This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. So that song was written by a man named William Cooper, who was very close friends with his pastor, John Newton, who wrote uh, Amazing Grace. And William Cooper, who wrote the hymn that we just sung, struggled with depression and mental illness uh, throughout his, his life. Um, but Christ had done a beautiful thing in his, his, his life. And even though he, he struggled, he had so many struggles um, with mental illness and, and depression, he had just experienced the love and the grace of God. It's a, it's a beautiful story and what a beautiful song. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Let's pray. Father, we, we want that to be the theme of our lives and of our church. Lord, your, your redeeming love is what life should be about. Lord, we, we are all sinners who have been redeemed by your grace. And so, Lord, we want to live out of the reality of that we want to know you more. We want to make you more known. And so, Lord, we pray that you would equip us by your word today. Lord, um, strengthen us to, to live for you, to go, to go out from this place today and live out the implications of the gospel and to share your redeeming love with a world that's broken and hurting and that desperately needs Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So, we are in a series on David. If you are new today, we're looking at the life of David from the Old Testament, mainly in First and Second Samuel. And so, if you would turn in your Bibles today to Second Samuel chapter 8, we're going to be looking at chapters 8 and 9 and 11 and 12 mainly today, and then also at Psalm 51 uh, later in the service. So, we're talking today about great sin greater grace. Great sin, greater grace. And so we're going to be begin um, in 2 Samuel 8, so just kind of have your Bibles open and be ready to engage beginning then. So last week um, we talked about uh, the Davidic covenant. We were in 2 Samuel 7 where we see these amazing promises about Christ that God made to David. And then at the end of chapter 7, David is just pouring out this prayer of praise to, to God for all that he's done. And so 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel 7 just finishes with David praising God. He is walking with God, and that had incredible implications for the way that he led the nation. And so we begin there with a model of leadership. We, we see, especially in chapter 8, just a model of, of, of godly leadership on David's part. So in chapter 8, in verses 14 and 15, we are given kind of a progress report on how David is leading. Of course, he's become king by this point. And beginning with the latter part of verse 14, 
The Bible says there that the Lord made David victorious wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, administering justice and righteousness for all his people. And so what a gift this is to the people to have a leader like this, which is why 1 Timothy 2 commands us to pray for leaders and for those who are in authority because they impact the lives of other people. And David is impacting the lives of the people in, in just a, an incredibly positive way. He's administering justice and righteousness for all his people. In Psalm 78, we're also told about the kind of, of leadership that David was giving to the people. It says there that God chose David as servant and took him from the sheep pens. He brought him from tending ewes to be shepherd over his people, Jacob, over Israel, his inheritance. And then look at verse 72. It says of David that he shepherded them with a pure heart and guided them with his skillful hands. And so David was leading with integrity, right? A pure heart. And he was leading with ability, with skillful hands. Again, what a gift this kind of leader is to a people. And in, and in addition to all that, David was compassionate. So in chapter 9 and verse 3, we see there that the king asks, is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to. David did not forget his friendship with Jonathan. You remember we saw last week that both Saul and Jonathan are now dead. They were killed in battle. And David hasn't forgotten. You know, and despite the fact that Saul had been trying to kill him, David says, I, I want to show kindness to, 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 to Saul's family in, in any way that I possibly can. And so someone says, well, there's Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son who had been crippled as a child. He'd been in an accident when he was like five years old, and so he, 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 was, he, was, he was crippled. And so they bring, they bring Mephibosheth in, who's no longer a child, but still, still crippled, and they bring him in before David, and he's, he's terrified because, you know, Saul was his grandfather, and Saul had been trying to kill David. And so Mephibosheth at first was, you know, he, how is David going to accept me? But what does David, what does David say in, in verse 7, chapter 9? David says, don't be afraid, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. You know, we just sung that song earlier. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. You know, Romans 5.10 says that we, when we were enemies of God, that we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And so through the work of Christ, God brings us in makes us part of his family, seats us at his table. And that's the, that's the compassion that David is, is showing to, to Jonathan's son here. And so in chapters 8 and 9, what we're, see, we're seeing here is that David 
is shepherding the people in a godly way. Why? Because David was walking with the great shepherd. David says in his most famous psalm, Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. And so David was shepherding the people in a godly way because he was looking to God as his own shepherd. And so at this point, he's providing a model of leadership. Next, we see model of a fall. We're, we're, we're now going to look at the darkest episode of David's life, but we need to look at it. It's in the Bible for a reason. So let's fast forward over to chapter 11, and let's look at verses 1 and 2. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the, of the palace. From the roof, he saw a beautiful a, a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. Now, scholars debate about whether David should have been in Jerusalem at this point in, in time. We, we know from David's track record that he's, he doesn't lack courage. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, when he was a shepherd boy, he, he killed lions and bears, and then he killed Goliath. And, I mean, he's demonstrated his courage in battle time and time again. He's a courageous warrior. But there are a couple of things that are really troubling <laughs> about verses 1 and 2. First of all, David at this point in time is is dangerously isolated. The men that he is close to are, are not there. They're all off fighting. And so David is, he seems to be, to be alone and, and isolated at this point. You know, Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. David's not around the guys who keep him sharp at this point. It's back in Jerusalem. In Hebrews uh, 10, 24, it says that as believers that we are to stir up one another to, to love and good works, provoke love and good works. And this is why we are to meet with one another. Because we, we, we need one, we don't, we, we can't, when we get isolated from one another, we're far more vulnerable to the enemy. You know what, we use a, a charcoal grill at, at home and whenever we, we, we grill, I have a, it's like a metal chimney and you know, you pour the charcoal in the top of the chimney, you put newspaper in the bottom and then I light the newspaper and it kind of creates a draft and it goes up and it, you know, heats, it heats all, the, all the coals in the chimney. So I let that burn for about 15 minutes and then I take it and I pour out the coals into our grill but inevitably, when I do that, there'll be a coal or two that'll kind of, you know, uh, topple over to the side. So I have to kind of take the poker and kind of pull, pull those coals kind of like back into the middle. And see, as believers, it's like that. When we get, when we get kind of, when we tumble off to the side and we're isolated from our brothers and sisters in Christ, 
That's not good. Our hearts can grow cold. This is why, you know, when, when you see brothers and sisters in the church that you know, and they're, when they're getting, uh, you don't see them, and, and, and it seems like they're, they're getting, um, their church attendance is becoming you know, kind of more inconsistent and sporadic and things like that, you, you need to reach out to them. You know, you don't have to beat them over the head or anything like that. Reach out in love. Hey, we, we care about you. I'm missing you. You know, just check on them. Because right? we, don't, we don't want people to get isolated. That's, that's dangerous spiritually. And David here just seems to be kind of dangerously isolated. Second, there seems to be, the, the language here just creates the image of not being spiritually alert. You know, he's getting up from the, his bed, he's strolling around the roof of his palace. I mean, just the, the imagery here communicates complacency. Drift. And again, this is incredibly problematic. David seems to have drifted in his relationship with the Lord. You know, the thing about drift is that it's, it's, it's imperceptible when it's happening. <laughs> you don't realize always that you're drifting. You ever been out in the ocean? I, I love ocean water. I just love to swim in the ocean and just the salt water just invigorates me. But, you know, sometimes I'll be out there floating and uh, just kind of not paying attention and, you know, you suddenly look up, man, you've drifted way down, way down the beach because of the current. Or sometimes the current will, will take you further out and, and you, you're like, wow, you know, this, I didn't even... I didn't even realize that's the way the drift, that's the way drift is. So how do we avoid drift? How do we avoid, if you're married, how do you avoid drifting apart as a couple? You cultivate your love, right? It, it takes daily communication, it takes hard work. It, takes, it means taking time for one another, you know, just to sit down and, and talk on a daily basis basis or have a date night you know weekly so you're, you're not you're not drifting apart and in our relationship with the Lord we have to cultivate our love for him and we do that through prayer we do that through his word we do, do that through involvement with other believers in the church family drifting is dangerous And here's the irony. David's, David's troops are out on the field fighting enemies. But what David doesn't understand is that his most lethal enemy is not out on the battlefield. His most lethal enemy and ours is not human at all, but supernatural. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9 says, Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him firm in the faith. You see, the problem with David here did not begin the moment that he saw Bathsheba bathing. The problem started well before that. And he's a sitting duck. He's vulnerable. By the way, uh, there is no suggestion here whatsoever 
that Bathsheba was doing anything wrong. She was not being, there's no suggestion that she was being immodest in any way. In, in the old city of Jerusalem, when you look down, there are all kinds of just you know, private uh, court guards and alcoves and things like that. She had no idea that she could be seen by, by anyone, let alone that the, the king was, was leering lustfully at her. Let's, let's continue in verse 3. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, and wife of Uriah the Hethite? Now David knew these guys. He knew her dad. He knew her husband. Because both Bathsheba's father and her husband were part of the 30. They were David's, they were part of David's best fighters. His, his inner core of guys that were incredibly loyal to him. Her dad and her husband, he knew them. And they were incredibly loyal to him. Which makes what happens next all the more heinous. Verse 4. David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. Now, We don't know exactly what happened behind closed doors. But what we do know is so troubling, so messed up on so many levels. And think about the abuse of power that is involved in this. The abuse of David's position, his authority. He's, he's sending messengers, basically summoning her to come. This is awful. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. It's obvious that Uriah cannot be the father. Why? Because Uriah is off fighting David's battles on the battlefield. And so when she becomes pregnant, he goes into cover-up mode he has uh, Uriah summoned to come back to Jerusalem from the battlefield, thinking that he'll go and sleep with his wife, and you know maybe they can cover it up you know, that, that way. But there's a problem. Brave, loyal Uriah, when he comes back to Jerusalem, he says, I, I can't go home and enjoy all the, the comforts of, of home when, when the guys are out on the battlefield. So he doesn't even go inside his own house. David tries to loosen him up with alcohol, you know, thinking, oh, that, maybe that'll get him to, to go and sleep with his, his wife. Again, that doesn't work. And so then, you know, sin begets sin, lie begets lie, and now the unthinkable happens. David tells his commander, Joab, to put Uriah in a situation in battle where he is certainly going to be killed. And in the process, some of his own, his, his other loyal soldiers are also killed, all 
to be part of David's cover-up for his own sin. When Joab sends word back to Jerusalem that Uriah has been killed and some of your other soldiers have been killed, how does David respond? Verse 25. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this matter upset you because the sword devours all alike. Wow. He's like, everybody's got to die. This is the life we chose. This is the cost of doing business. I mean, his heart has become so calloused. Now listen, we don't want to hear this stuff about David, right? <laughs> like, we don't want to hear this. But we need to hear this. It's in the Bible for a reason. The Bible never whitewashes the lives of people. It just kind of puts it out there. And there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, so that we can understand none of us are immune, none of us are exempt. Listen, if this could happen to somebody like David, a man after God's own heart, this can happen to any of us if we allow our lives to drift from the Lord. If we get away from the Lord, if we, if we allow our, our lives to drift from closeness and intimacy with Christ, listen, we are capable of some ungodly things that we could never imagine ourselves doing. Don't think that you are immune. Don't think it could never happen to you. So this is a sobering warning to all of us. Stay spiritually alert. Stay close to Christ. We should, we should heed the words of Christ to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 and verses 4 and 5. Christ says to the church at Ephesus, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If you were drifting today, friend, I would beg you, come back to your first love. There's another reason why things like this are in the Bible and why the Bible doesn't wash, whitewash the lives of people. And that is because we need to look to the one who never sinned. Uh, David was a, the greatest of Israel's kings. We need a greater king than David. We need the king who never sinned. Hebrews 12, 2 says we need to be fixing our eyes on Jesus who never errs, never lets us down. We can always count on him, the one who never sinned, but who took our sins upon himself. Chapter 11 ends in verses 26 and 27 on really uh, kind of a chilling uh, note. It says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And so it looks like, hey, the cover-ups worked. Nobody knows. 
However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. You know, we, we live our lives, quorum Deo, before the face of God. There's nothing hidden from him. Remember Nathan? We talked about him last time. Nathan was a prophet. He was a spiritual counselor to David. God revealed to Nathan everything that had happened. And so Nathan comes to David, and he says to David, I've got a story to tell. And David says, tell it. And we see it at the beginning of chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb. A a ewe is a, a, a female baby lamb that he had bought. He raised her, and she grew up with him and with his children. From his meager food she would eat, from his cup she would drink, and in his arms she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. So in the story you've got two men, one is filthy rich, I mean he's got, and he's a rancher, he's got herds, hundreds, maybe thousands of heads of, of livestock and and lambs. The other man, this, this, this poor guy, all they have is just one baby lamb that has become a pet to their family. Now listen, I can relate to, I can relate to this in a way that I couldn't have a couple of years ago because two years ago, we brought in a little baby chocolate lab into our four or five pounds when we brought him in, and Jeter has become a part of our family in every conceivable way. Like, I can relate to every detail of the story. We, we love him. He's a part of our family in every way. That's the situation with this little baby lamb, with this poor family. Pick it up in verse four. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. Slaughters it. Prepares it as a meal. Now, this story is meant to enrage. I mean, I got furious all over again just studying this this week. I mean, it's a story that is just designed to elicit rage on our part. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's an outrageous, it's an outrageous cruelty. And as David listens to it, that's the emotion that he has. David listens to this story and he is livid. 
And in verse five, it says that he was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. And Nathan just looks at him and he says, it's you. Nathan replied to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from Saul. I gave you your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Verse 9. Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hethite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him. Model of a fall. Third, model of repentance. Model of repentance. David had said what to Nathan? The man who did this deserves to die. The great church father, Augustine, said this. Augustine said, to cut away diseased tissue in David's heart and heal the wound there, Nathan used David's tongue as a knife. David had said it with his own words. The man who did this deserves to die. And he says in, in verse 13, simply, I have sinned against the Lord. You know, no, no, no celebrity <laughs> mea culpa from, from David here. No, no, no non-apology apology like we so often see in public life today. You know, no, David doesn't send out a spokesperson to read a prepared statement, you know, and, and say, you know, I... I, I I, I grieve that my actions have brought harm to anyone. Now David just, he just says, I've sinned against the Lord. He's a broken man. And we see the results of his brokenness in one of his most famous psalms, Psalm 51. Let's turn to Psalm 51. So when you look at your Bible, right, up, right above the psalm, before it begins, it says, it gives us the occasion of when the psalm was written. And it says that this one was written when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone to Bathsheba. So it was in the aftermath of what, of what had happened. And in part of, part of his, and, and in his brokenness, and repentance, David writes, Psalm 51. Let's look at, at, at verse one. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, 
according to your abundant compassion. You see, David here is appealing solely to the mercy of God. He knows that he has no claim upon God. He knows that he deserves nothing but death and condemnation for what he's done. And you see, that's the way that we have to come to Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Lord, I don't, I don't deserve your mercy. I'm, I'm hurling myself on your mercy and grace. That's all I can do. Notice, notice the word blot out here in verse 1. Blot out my rebellion. We see that again in verse 9. He says, turn your face away from my sins and <clears throat> blot out all my guilt. Back in the 80s when we were writing papers, sometimes we would have a, a bottle of whiteout at our side. Some of you can remember whiteout. We're dating ourselves. But you know, you would take the you would take the brush out of the whiteout and you would you would you would kind of you would kind of blot out mistakes. God does that with our sins. Isaiah 43 and verse 25. God says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. But how can God do that and remain righteous? How can he blot out our sins and still be a righteous God? You know, is God just sort of like sweeping it beneath the rug? That wouldn't be righteous. No, God can blot out our sins because Christ, who had no sin, took our sins upon himself. That's how God blots out our transgressions. Look at verse four. David says, against, says to God, against you, you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, he's not denying the horrible sins that were committed against Bathsheba and Uriah and other people. It's not denying that at all, but what this means is that ultimately, all sin is against God. It's very personal. Every sin ultimately and personally is against God. It is against him and it is in his sight. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Remember, he tried to cover it up. It was in plain sight of God, as is every sin that we commit. Look at verse 6. David says to God, Surely you desire integrity in the inner self. David is coming to terms with the fact that this emerged from my heart. Our actions do not occur in a vacuum. Our actions flow from our inner selves, from our hearts, which is why he says in, in verse 10, God, create a clean heart for me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Look at verse 12. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. You know what? 
every sin really flows from the fact that we are trying to get our joy and our satisfaction outside of the will of God. This is why it's so important in the Christian life to practice the discipline of joy, to rejoice in the Lord always. Because sin is always an attempt to find joy and satisfaction outside of God and his will. Which is why Psalm 90 and verse 14 is such an important prayer for us to pray. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. It's a great prayer to pray in the morning. Lord, satisfy me with your love. Rejoice in you. Joy is not found outside of your will and your way. Look at verse 13. David says, Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. Listen, when repentance is real, we care about other people. And David has experienced here the amazing grace of God. He's like, I can't keep this to myself. David has been so blown away by God's forgiveness and his amazing grace, he's like, I I want other people to know this. I can't keep this inside. I want other people to know this incredible God of grace and mercy. Verse 15, he says, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Again, I can't keep this inside. Lord, you are so good. I am so blown away by your amazing grace, your loving kindness. I can't keep this within. My lips are going to praise you. Now, maybe you're asking today, what does God really want from my life? Look at verses 16 and 17. David says to God, you do not want to sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. Listen, what God wants from you today is you. You. He wants you to humble yourself and say, Lord, I am yours. Put your life on the altar before him and say, Lord, I'm yours. Every part of me, it's all yours. I'm holding nothing back. If you're not yet a Christian, that begins with giving your life to Christ as your Savior and Lord and King. It means coming before him and saying, Lord, I don't deserve your mercy, but I believe that you gave your son to die for my sins upon the cross and to rise from the dead that I, I may have eternal life. And I am, I am hurling myself on the mercy of your love for me in Christ. If you're here today as a believer, have you lost your first love? 
come home to him. Come back to your first love. If you're drifting, repent. That your intimacy with the Lord would be restored because you're vulnerable. If God is speaking to you today about being a part of this church family, about saying, you know what, I can't be isolated. The Christian life's not about being isolated. It's about being part of a family of other believers. We want to invite you in just a moment to, to, to come forward and to make that public. And we want to come alongside, pray for you, welcome you, help you get started right, rejoice with you. You may be here and you would say, I, I, I need to be baptized as a believer. Jesus tells us to make that public, and there's victory in making it public. You come. Father, as we bow before you, we thank you for the amazing grace that we see in the gospel. That our sins that were many, that your mercy is more. That you give greater grace. And so, Lord, thank you for your grace. We know that it was our sins that put, that put your son on the cross. That he was dying for us. And Lord, we thank you that you, you welcome us in through your son, that, that we can be seated at the table as your sons and daughters, adopted by you. Oh, God, what amazing grace. Lord, would you work your will and your way. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.